Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might rescue us from this present evil world, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That portion of God's word which we consider this morning, the Holy Spirit caused the evangelist Luke to write for our comfort and our learning, and we place a special emphasis on these words. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let us pray. These are your words, Holy Father. Sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, you can imagine what Jesus' disciples saw that the prophets and kings had longed to see, and which we also do not see, but the apostles did. It is the fulfillment of God's promises. It is the fulfillment that God gave to Abraham when he said, in your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. And this fulfillment showed itself in a way which people did not expect Considering in the Old Testament all the talk of the glory of the Messiah's kingdom, when the Messiah came, whom the disciples recognized as the Christ, the Son of the living God, he did not seem very glorious. And yet God's glory is shown chiefly in showing mercy and pity. They saw him not just change water into wine and save a wedding, they saw him raise the dead heal sick people whom nobody else could heal. They heard him speak the truth of God's holy word in a way that was clearer even than Moses had spoken. They saw the fulfillment of God's promises. Blessed are their eyes which saw what they saw and their ears which heard what they heard. There were many, even in Jesus' time, who did not see Jesus as the Christ, as the promised Messiah, the one anointed to save us from sin and death. Because they were distracted by his humble appearance. He didn't show himself to be glorious. Right before these words of the Holy Gospel, Jesus thanks God. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Those who do not know Jesus are those who do not know his mercy. And those who do not know Jesus are those who follow the wrong way to eternal life. There are two ways in the scriptures for eternal life. There is the way which we see described here in today's gospel, when the lawyer puts Jesus to the test and says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus points him to the law. And the lawyer gives the proper response and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself, which he probably had learned from Jesus from another occasion. And Jesus says, do this and you will live. Now, why does Jesus say this? Why does Jesus not say, no, you're not saved by your works? You 
saved by me. Because the wise and prudent need to become babes. The wise and prudent need to understand the true nature of the law of God. Now notice what the lawyer does. He says, and who is my neighbor, seeking to justify himself. What does this mean? It means that he already has assumed that he loves God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. But let us just review what it means. All of the commandments in the Old Testament that point you to loving God are summarized in this commandment, that you love him above all things, that you love him with all of your heart, not a part of your heart, that is with all of your affections and thoughts. The heart in Hebrew is your thinking and your affection. They're joined together. So that you never have a feeling that is evil. You don't think bad about God. You don't doubt him in times of suffering. You cling to him because he's the God who made you. And he wants to be your God because he is. And with all your soul, now soul in the Hebrew from which this is taken means your life, but it means your, your animate life. And I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but in the Old Testament, animals have souls. Okay, it's just a different kind of soul. Or does nephesh in the Hebrew? You can say animals don't have souls, it's fine in a certain definition by what we mean by soul, but it means your life. Your, so not just your mind, that's your heart in this case, but it means your entire life, that is your power of life, all of your energy and your exertions, God made to be directed towards him. He created you to love him with all of your soul all of your life and with all your strength this is the strength of your mind the strength of your ears all of your bodily faculties your mouth your nose your touch your strength to be able to run or to sit down and rise up your strength to do anything that you want in this life you should use entirely in love and desire for God as your goal as the object of everything that you do and the purpose of everything that you use your strength for. And mind is added here to distinguish it with all of your thoughts, with everything that you think. Now, this is an amazing thing. Those who think that they can, by observing the outward act, worship God with no regard for how they think, with no regard for examining their pride, thinking that this is, as, this, as the ancient hymn goes, it's my life, it's now or never, I ain't gonna live forever, I just wanna live while I'm alive. They teach in the world that your life is your own, and you get to use it however you want. God says no. In fact, he says, <clears throat> when he gives this law in Deuteronomy chapter six, he says, these words which I have commanded you today shall be in your heart. Means they shall be on your mind all the time. And you shall teach them diligently to your children when you sit down and when you, and, and when you go on the way and when you lie down and rise up. And they shall be frontlets, frontlets on your eyes and, and they shall be on the doorposts of your house. In other words, these words are the most important words that you could possibly ever hear about 
who you are in relation to God, how he made you to be. And in fact, in another story, another history, Jesus says the great commandment, the greatest commandment is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, all of the Bible, everything God has to say is summarized in these words. And so we dare not dismiss them and say, I already know I'm saved by grace through faith, and so I don't need to think about this. No. No, it is an interesting thing that Jesus directs the lawyer not to the gospel, which promises the free forgiveness of sins, but to the law. If you do this, you will live. It is a condition. If you love God with everything that you are, then you will be accounted righteous. You will earn and have the right to enter into God's kingdom. You will live forever. Because that's what life is. Life is loving God. And not loving God is death. Because God is the source of all life. If you don't love God, you don't love life. You love some semblance of it. Now, as I noted, the lawyer just assumed that he had done this. And so his problem is pride. Just as it is the problem of all of us, the devil's sin was pride. And what he infected us with, this promise that you will be like God, knowing good and evil, that's the promise that you can do whatever you want. And it's interesting that he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to be able to point to something that he did so that he could say that he was righteous. And so he asks, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? So that I can know that who I have to actually do good to. Now, Jesus replies with a beautiful parable, which is well known and which is often misunderstood. But he had already taught everything that is in the Good Samaritan earlier. The man is a Jewish man heading from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell, falls among robbers. The priest is supposed to keep the word of God. If he is supposed to heal the wounds of Israel's spirits, that is, to forgive their sins, to offer sacrifices and preach the coming Messiah, then certainly, certainly he should be moved with compassion to help heal the bodily suffering of this man lying, half, lying naked on the side of the road and beaten. And if the man is half dead and he glimpses through his eyes and sees the priest coming, his heart must have leaped, leapt forward and thought, here is my brother, here is someone who has been taught the mercy of God, surely he will help me. But he passed by on the other side. And a Levite who was in charge of arranging all of the sacrifices and assisting the priests and in teaching the people that half-dead man, if he saw him through his squinted eyes, would have thought, okay, at least this man, he knows how to help people. He feeds me at the sacrifices. He knows what he's doing. But no, he passes by. Now, the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were part Jewish, or Israelite, and part all sorts of different races that the Assyrians had brought down and mingled there to settle the land. And they had a weird religion. They talked about Jacob a lot, and they still taught the Messiah, but they did not want to worship in Jerusalem because the Jews treated them like dirt. And many of the Jews back in the days of Ezra had married Samaritans and then had broken off the marriage because they weren't supposed to. And so they felt neglected. And if you remember Jesus, when he goes to a town in Samaria, 
he goes and talks to a Samaritan woman at the well. And she says, how is it that you, being a Jew, talk to me, being a Samaritan? They were enemies. The Samaritan saw an enemy on the side of the road. It was his enemy. It was somebody who would not help him. It was someone who thought that he rightfully shunned him and hated him. He showed him mercy. That is what the law requires. Jesus explains this. He teaches nothing different from Moses. How can you love God whom you have not seen when you don't love your neighbor whom you have seen? Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other cheek. Jesus says, if, 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 if people curse you, bless them. Bless them, do not curse. Pray for those who persecute you and do good to those who spitefully use you. He says, if anyone asks anything of you, give, lend, expecting nothing in return. In other words, love is not, I give you this, you give me that. That's not the love the law requires. Jesus says, if you greet only those whom you know and love, do not even the tax collectors do such thing, things. Love simply requires, it is part and parcel of the law of God. Defining what love is, that you do good to your enemy. You have heard it said, you still love your friends and hate your enemies, but I say love your enemies, Jesus says. And so maybe that's the answer to the, to the lawyer's question. Who is my neighbor, my enemy? But Jesus does a little, well, for lack of a better term, a little switcheroo. The lawyer asked, who is my neighbor, seeking to justify himself? Jesus asks him at the end, who was a neighbor to the man who fell among thieves? The one who showed mercy. And then he says, go and do likewise. The only way that you will learn the need for the way that leads to eternal life apart from your works is if you love what God commands. Grant us an increase of faith, hope, and love, charity. So that, and that we may obtain what you promise, make us to love what you command. In other words, until you see that you need to love your enemy, I'm talking about the one who cheated on you, who lied to you, who used you, who gossiped about you behind your back, who disappointed you, who owed you something and didn't pay it back, hurt you. And you will not see your need for a way to life besides your own good works. Now this world, you ever hear, I say this all the time, guys, but it's, it bears repeating. You know how people say all religions are basically the same? Right? Like, all of you guys hear this, okay? All religions are basically the same. They all lead to the same way. What they're saying is what is written on their hearts. God created you to love him and your neighbor. He created you. He didn't create you to doubt him. He didn't create you to love yourself more than another person. God did not do that. And so that's in every religion in some sense. 
Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The Quran says, do not do unto others what you would not want them to do to you. And you have this all over the place. Confucianism, Buddhism, everything. Basically, don't be a jerk. Be nice. And if you don't get paid back for what you do, then there's something like karma, something like that. That is the way of the law. Now, show to me anybody in the history of mankind. Search the annals, the Bhagavadas, the Quran, the, the Midrash, all, all throughout there. Try to find me someone who has loved God with his whole heart and loved his neighbor as himself. And loved his enemies all the time with his whole heart. Because this is the thing. If someone insults you and you feel anger in you, are you loving God with all your heart? When God told you to love your neighbor. You see, you learn that you haven't loved God when you realize that you don't want to love your enemy. And that is why Jesus directs him and all of us to the law. So that we might not mince words and try to excuse ourselves and join the world and say, hey, if you're basically just a good person, you know, like the poor friend I had who, in admitting that she was a sinner, added the words, well, at least I'm not a murderer or a child molester. If that is your hope, that you are not like other men, then you are standing with the Pharisee in the temple. And you do not go home justified. And so we must do this. It is good for us to sing all 12 stanzas of that Ten Commandments hymn. It's good for you when you get up in the morning to say the Ten Commandments, to remind yourself of your works so that you see your need for the one whom you have not loved. Now it is interesting that Jesus directs the lawyer to the law and yet hidden in this parable is precisely the gospel. The law is the Ten Commandments, or these two commandments here, that teach you how to love God and your neighbor. This is the love you're created for. But as many as are of the works of the law, as belong to the works of the law, as trust in the works of the law, are under a curse, Paul says in Galatians. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything in this book of the law to do them. In other words, when you don't love, what is left for you? Excuses. And you find in your life, in trying to inherit eternal life by doing good, by impressing people, you start to see what's wrong with you. Instead of the glory of the image of God in which man was made, you find that if the light were to shine on your soul for all to see, you would be ashamed. Instead of the health and vigor and strength of Adam and Eve, who were made to love God above all things and love their neighbor as themselves, you find your strength wasted on your own pleasures, on your own pride, on your own glory. And this is what the devil has done to us. He comes with lies and he strips Adam of all of his glory and leaves him half dead. He's alive. We're walking around here, but spiritually he has... We, are, we were dead in our sins and trespasses, Paul says. That means that we had no good in us. The natural man was not receiving the things of the Spirit of God. In other words, he was dead because the Spirit gives life. And we went down from Jerusalem 
where the forgiveness of sins was preached to Jericho, the city of palms, which is the city of pleasure, and we were going away from God. And the devil found us, and he robbed us of every good that we had. And he left us on the side of the road, half dead, and we could not help ourselves. And the law passes by the priest. He passes by because all of his sacrifices and customs can't do anything for you. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the state. And the, the Levites who meticulously obeyed setting up the temple and doing all of these things and washing hands and doing all of these things, they could not help him. He walked on by. The law does not save you. If you'll remember when Jesus was arguing with the Jews earnestly and saying, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins, they said to him, are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And do you know what Jesus' reply was? I do not have a demon. He doesn't say I'm not a Samaritan. It's kind of like Lutherans. You know that Lutheran was an insult? And we're like, fine, call us Lutherans. We were the original evangelicals. We called ourselves evangelicals. Jesus takes that title, Samaritan. Not because he was. He's Jewish. He's born of the Virgin Mary. Joseph is his adopted father. He's a Jew. But he will take that title of being despised because it is precisely those who think that they can be righteous on their own and don't need God, that they have enough love and want to justify themselves. It is those who don't recognize Jesus and call him a Samaritan. But if you have found yourself half dead on the side of the road so that you can't raise yourself up, so that it's hard to pray to God because your heart doubts whether he's going to hear you, so that in times of trial you grumble and complain and hold on to bitter thoughts against people who have done you wrong and you see that it's wrong, when you see how much God requires of you that you simply do not have and you are ashamed of yourself, you don't need the priest, you don't need the Levite, you need Jesus Christ, the Good Samaritan. You need the one who shows mercy. So he did. He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, he gave them the right to become the sons of God. He came clothed in humility, and yet he was entirely righteous. He came innocent, and yet he takes our guilt. And he goes and he is stripped naked. We always have cloth over him. He was absolutely naked on that cross. Ashamed. Because on him was laid every transgression against the law. On him was laid sins of all of God's enemies. Whom he called his friends. And so he calls you today. Do not think that you have sinned so long. Your sin is too deep. Because he went to the cross for you. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem, rescue, ransom those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Under the law. That law that tells you you haven't done enough. That law that accuses you and shows you that by yourself, with your own natural powers, you are half dead on the side of the road and naked. Under that law. He died, and he bore the sin of the world, and he raised himself from the dead, but not until blood and water had poured from his side. And so now he finds us on the side of the road, and he pours on the oil of the Holy Spirit in our baptism.
and he gives us to taste of his blood that flowed from his veins. And in that, he forgives us our sins and he heals us and he brings us to the church. Every church, every Christian church ought to be nothing else than a hospital for poor sinners. That's why we're here. I want you to abound in good works. I want you to do good. I want you to have happy lives on this earth. But I want more than anything for you to say and believe with all your heart. I believe in the forgiveness of sin. I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe that he had mercy on me when I was his enemy. Because that is the foundation of Olaf. And that is the way that leads to eternal life. When you have nothing and Jesus gives to you, expecting you to do nothing in return to save yourself. When he turns the other cheek and he keeps coming back to you, even after you've fallen again and stumbled, that is our religion. And that is not like all the other religions of this world. It is singular and special and completely unique. Because only in the Christian religion are we saved entirely by the mercy and grace of God, by a man whom still the world treats as a Samaritan, as a strange man who's not going to help us. But he does. He shows you your sin gently. He cleans you and he brings you to the church where you are forgiven, where you hear that he's coming soon again bring you completely healthy to heaven. And now we have some time on our hands, only a little while, before the night comes when no man can work. And we have learned from Jesus how we ought to conduct ourselves here in this short while. You go and do likewise. Do you have enemies? Do you have people who have hurt you? Sometimes they're members of your own household. Sometimes they're they're people that you consider friends. Give them. Show them mercy. Do good to them. Love them. Patient and kind. Follow the example of Christ. Love what he commands. You will obtain what he promises. And he promises the free forgiveness of sins. He promises mercy for you, every sinner. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? and act like it, you go and do likewise. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen.